Now, it's kind of interesting. Um, I've been out here teaching Wednesday night church services for 20 years. And uh, we've talked through a lot of books of the Bible on Sundays and Wednesdays. But you know what? We have never talked through the book of Ezra. So this is a first for me, a first, I hope, for you as well to be blessed by this book. Now, this is a fascinating little book. It's only 10 chapters long, and we're going to actually move pretty quickly through this. We're really time long. We're doing the first two chapters tonight with an actual considerable introduction. With that being said, Ezra reads very straightforward. I just want to make sure you know that. As you're reading Ezra, in some ways it almost feels like you're reading a business report of what was happening and what was going on. I love these type of books. You get into a lot of historical context. You get into a lot of prophecy. But the neat thing is, as you read through this, you find little nuggets of information. And these are the book studies I love. Where you try to find these little bits and pieces, because I firmly believe this. If every word from Genesis to Revelation is God-inspired and of the Lord, then that means there are little nuggets in here that you want to stop and say, okay, Lord, what are you trying to tell me with this? And you get to find it. Remember when you read through the Old Testament, sometimes people come up and find the Old Testament very dry, very boring. Always look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus said, the whole book is written about me. So therefore, if that's true, as we go through Ezra and we get into some of these details, just to show you how much fun this book is going to be, could you look at chapter 2 with me, please? Does not chapter 2... Look like the most exciting chapter in the entire Bible to you. Oh boy, we're going to have fun with this one, folks. So, now, you need to know a little bit of historical context. If you do not like the history of the Bible and you kind of have a tendency to tune out, take a five minute break. I'll come back to you in a little bit. You need to understand what's going on here. What happened was this, and I'm going to give you a quick Old Testament rundown. You know what happened? You had uh, King Saul as the first king. After King Saul was King David. After David, you had Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom split into two. You had the northern tribes of Israel, ten northern tribes, and you had the southern kingdom called Judah. Now, what happened here, in 722 B.C., the ten northern tribes were taken over by Assyria. They ceased to exist from that extent. 586 B.C., Babylon came in and overtook the southern two tribes. So at that point, Israel ceased to exist, if you will, as a nation with that, and they had gone into captivity. Now, they had gone into captivity for 70 years. We're going to get to this in a little bit. Seven years was their time of punishment. Well, when the time of punishment came to an end, these rulers, who now were the Persians, said, we're going to start sending the Jews back. And they sent them back in three different waves. And here's the first wave. Roughly 538, 536 B.C., depending on your calendar, could be a little different. The first group comes back with a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is my favorite Bible name right up there with Jehoshaphat. It's a wonderful name. Anybody expecting, looking for a good biblical boy name? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel returns with roughly 50,000 people, and they start rebuilding the temple. Now, if you're a fan of Bible history, these names should ring a bell to you. This is during the reign of Cyrus and Darius I of Persia. So that's what happened. Now, they run into some problems with the temple ring go bell, and that's what we're going to talk about in the book of Ezra. Now, you can see here, in 458-457, Ezra brings a second group to come back with about 2,000 people. Ezra does spiritual reforms. The temple gets rebuilt during Zerubbabel's time, but Ezra does spiritual reforms. The first half of the book of Ezra is about Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. The second half is about Ezra doing spiritual reforms. Now, contemporary of this, Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, the next book, 
445, 444 BC, he returns with the army escort. His job is to rebuild the walls. Same thing here during the time of Artaxerxes. This is just a little bit of background, a little bit of history as you go through this. So this time period consists of three returns of Jews that were in captivity from when Babylon took them over. The Persians are now in charge because the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and they are now sending these Jews back to rebuild the temple, to make them a nation again, and to rebuild the walls. Now, why would they do that? We're going to get to that in a little bit. Next slide real quick, please, Dustin. Just some other information. If you'd like to put all this together, Haggai, Zechariah are prophets during the time of Zerubbabel, and probably Malachi is during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So as you read Haggai and Zechariah, it's during this time. A little bit of information, Esther becomes queen between Zerubbabel and Ezra. Just to kind of put this all in perspective there. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all right there in the same time frame. Ezra and Nehemiah are actually contemporaries. Nehemiah refers to Ezra in his book. Esther is the queen between Zerubbabel and Ezra. Excuse me, Ezra. And then what you also have once again is Haggai, Zechariah, and uh, Malachi was the prophets during this time. Dustin, if you could go back one slide, we'll just leave that timeline up there. That's your little introduction. Now you may say, why does this matter? That's the fun of this book. Because as you read through this, it reads very straightforward. But when you get to the end, it's a little bit easier to make some spiritual points. But as you read these first couple chapters, it's just facts. Hey, Lord, what are you trying to tell us? Because if we truly believe that Genesis to Revelation is wholly inspired God's word, that means when it's so easy to teach out of a Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, or Jesus in John 14, there should be just as much fruit in Ezra keep saying Ezra. Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. You should have seen it when I was preparing this lesson at home. I had myself so confused between Ezra and Ezra. Now I'm getting myself confused again. Ezra chapter 1. Let's see what it has to say. Verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Please put this in perspective. Here's the world leader at the time. He is over this group of Jews. He's kind of inherited, because Babylon defeated him. They're basically his slaves, his servants. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you guys all back to Jerusalem. Not only send you back, I'm going to send you back and command you to build a temple so you can worship God. That's almost unbelievable. Why would Cyrus do this? Why would Cyrus do this? Let's take a look at it. Can you go with me to Isaiah, please? Isaiah 44. These are the little nuggets we need to stop and look at. Isaiah 44. Once again, just to kind of remind you, and I'm just going to throw the verses out there. You can write them down if you want to. What happened was this, as you're going to Isaiah 44. Part of the reason why the Jews were captured is there was something they were supposed to do called these Sabbath years. Every seventh year, they were supposed to take the year off. Now, just put that in perspective for a little bit. 
God is telling you to take one day off a week for Sabbath day. Telling you, making you, forcing, saying, this is good for you. I love you. Do this. And then he stops and says, I even want you to go one step further. Every seventh year, take the entire year off. Can you imagine that? Your employer coming to you and saying, I want you every seventh year to take the year completely off. And we're going to pay for it. We're going to take care of everything. The Bible says that God was going to supernaturally make sure the crops from the sixth year was so abundant that it would have covered the seventh year. In fact, there'd be so much extra seed left over that the crops would be miraculously planted the seventh year for you to harvest the eighth year. And even go one step further, there's something called the year of Jubilee, which happens every 50th year. So that means every 50th year, you get another year off. And if you owe any debt, everything's taken care of, it's all paid, it's all free. It's a way to set yourself free again. But do quick math with me real quick. Seven times seven is what? Four to nine. That means every 50 years you get two years off in a row. Now, if you came to me and said, James, you're not going to believe this job I got. You're not going to believe this job. They're telling me every seventh year to take the year off. They're going to pay me enough to cover my year that I'm off the whole year. And, and if I happen to work there 50 years, which I kind of hope you don't, I actually get two years off in a row. I would say, that's amazing. And you would say, that's amazing too. Now, when you start working and you get up to your seventh year and I come up to you and I say, aren't you excited? You get your seventh year off. And you would say, I decided I'm going to work through it. I would have a few choice words for you at that time. And wondering, why would you do this? Well, what's happened in the nation of Israel, they got to the seventh year, and guess what they did? They worked. They did this for 490 years. So you know what God said? You owe me 70 years. 490, divided by So that's why they went into captivity for seven years. This is something that was prophesied that was going to happen. Jeremiah 25, 9 through 12, you're going to go spend 70 years there. Because I need to get your attention. You guys aren't listening to me. Look at it as a spiritual timeout, if you will. And Jeremiah said, though, even one step further is this. He said, after these 70 years are up, he said, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return. So he prophesied that after 70 years, I'm actually going to start sending you guys back. Now, how in the world could that happen? What world leader is going to stop and say, I'm going to send you back. And not only send you back, we're going to read in Nehemiah eventually, I'm going to send you the supplies you need to do this. Well, this is where it gets fascinating. Isaiah 44, please. Isaiah 44. Start in verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord who is anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so the gates will not be shut. Now, you may say, okay, what's the big deal about this? You've got to know a little bit of Old Testament timeline. This prophecy is for Cyrus. Cyrus, 538-536. You guys send him back. This prophecy was given 150 years before it happened. 150 years. Isaiah says there's going to be this guy by the name of Cyrus who God is going to raise up to send you back. And not only send you back, verse 28, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This is the amazing thing of prophecy. So when you read that first verse in Ezra 1, you just say, okay, Cyrus, I don't get into this history stuff. You need to get into this history stuff a little. 
This is an amazing prophecy. Church tradition teaches us, because you've got to put all these contemporaries together. Church tradition teaches us that when Cyrus came in to Babylon and defeated them, that supposedly Daniel came up to him, because Daniel was one of the exiles that got sent there, and Daniel brought the scroll of Isaiah to Cyrus and said, you are that man. You are that man. And so obviously the Lord was using Cyrus in an amazing, amazing way. If you're a note taker, you can put this verse right here, Isaiah 44, 28, and Isaiah 45, 1, put that right beside Cyrus' name in Ezra. Why would he send them back? As God prophesies, I will do this. I will do this. Now, stay in Isaiah. Just go back a few chapters to Isaiah 41. Let's make a spiritual point about this. Sometimes people will come up to me and say, what separates the Bible from any other supposed holy book? Fill in the bank, the Quran, anything like that. God will answer that question for you. Look at Isaiah 41, starting at verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. God says, you want to have a debate on who's better, me or you, other gods? Let's do it. Verse 22, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us the things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. See, what God is saying here is, listen, you believe that these false idols and gods you have are gods? God says, very simple, let's just do this. Let's have a little prophecy competition. You make your prophecies, I'll make my prophecies, and I'm going to show you who's going to win the part of the reason why God does these things, like with Cyrus, etc., is to remind you he is the only one, verse 22, to declare to us things to come. That's what separates the Bible from any other supposed holy book, is the 100% accuracy of prophecy that you have here. This is just one example of many, of a guy by name, 150 years before it even happened. God says, I'm going to raise up this guy, Cyrus. Isaiah is writing out this prophecy. This is even before they've been sent into captivity. And God says, hey, Isaiah, write it out. There's this guy by the name of Cyrus who's going to come and build the temple foundation. Well, that doesn't make any sense. The temple's already built. Yeah, but you don't get it. Babylon's going to come, 586 BC. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to spend seven years of captivity. I told Jeremiah this one. And so, therefore, now Cyrus is going to come. All these prophecies just start happening. It's amazing when you really start studying out the Bible, the detail that you see. Now, the spiritual point that we're going to make out of this is pretty straightforward and simple. Whatever you brought in tonight, whatever you're worried about or concerned about, I'm pretty sure God can handle that. If he by name can call somebody out 150 years before it happens, there's nothing, nothing, no worry, fear, or anxiety that you have tonight that's bigger than that. God who knows the past, present, and future knows exactly what's going on. That's why he tells us in Matthew... Do not worry about tomorrow. He's the God of that. That's why he tells us in the book of James, you are just a vapor, a morning fog. Who are you to plan anything? I'm God. Please remember that. Some of the biggest stresses I see in people is when they present their plans, their ideas to God, and they just expect God to agree with it. And they get frustrated that work didn't work out the way they thought it would. That vacation didn't work out. That job transfer. The situation at home didn't work out. Why? Because you came with your own ideas as a vapor, as a morning fog, and you tried to say, Lord, this is what I want. God's bigger than this. Trust it. Know it. Trust that he's moving and working. And this is just one little neat part about this. 
Any quick questions, comments about any of the introduction that we have here, or prophecy itself, Cyrus, etc.? Okay, we're good? All right. Yes, Nicole. Go back to the other slide. Yeah, can you go to the next one there, Dustin? Yeah, no problem. Any other quick questions, comments about anything? predominant religion of the day of Cyrus's time would be the Persians, and the Persians at that time, the Medes and Persians, would have looked at uh, Cyrus as God. They would have looked at their ruler as God. And you got to remember, when you read about some of these guys, like what Cyrus says here in this long introduction, or sometimes what Nebuchadnezzar says, what Belshazzar says, they're saying some great things. It doesn't mean they're really believing it. I mean, if you remember correctly about the fiery furnace thing, you know, after Nebuchadnezzar saw what happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, your God's the best God. So we're going to all follow your God. He, some of these Old Testament leaders would jump from God to God to God, whoever looked the most powerful at the time. Is Cyrus a believer and he's going to be in heaven? I don't know. He sure sounds pretty good right here, verses 2 through 4. I don't know if he is or not, but it would not surprise me if he is. It wouldn't surprise me if he isn't. But what it comes down to is these guys basically worship their kings, their deities, as the gods. So, anybody else have anything here for a while? Megan? How many people say there's lost books of the Bible? No, that's the amazing thing. When you study how the Bible came to us, it's amazing how these books were kept and taken care of and protected. You know, there's something that was found back in the 40s there. Uh, it was called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you can study that out a little bit if you want. But they found a nearly intact scroll of the book of Isaiah, and they found out that the book of Isaiah that we have today compared to the scroll of Isaiah that's about 2,500 years old, is nearly 90-plus percent the exact same. This stuff was, was known throughout. And so what happens is when you really study how the Bible came to us, you really see God's hand being upon it. From beginning to end, God has kept his word safe, kept his word secure, and that's what makes it so amazing. I, I've heard about lost books, yeah. And it's kind of interesting if you study out some of the lost books. Uh, there's some interesting accounts. There's an account of Jesus uh, getting mad at a bully and making him go blind. That sounds real biblical there. Uh, there's an account of Jesus being born as a child and taking balls of mud and throwing them up in the air and turning them into birds. So um, I hear things like that, and that's like, that doesn't line up with the Jesus that I see in the Gospels. So, yeah, so, yeah. You know, what it comes down to is when you really study how the Bible came to us, and I remember as a believer when I first started studying out how the Bible came to us, there's a little bit of concern of, okay, am I going to get into this and start realizing how did this all stay together? And when you study it out, oh, man, just reassures you. From Genesis to Revelation, he's got it all figured out. He ordainedly kept it. He just says, God ordained, it's beautiful, and there's no worries or concerns in any way whatsoever. What else have you Yeah, I'm interested. Did they not take it because of faith? That's probably the easiest answer. It takes a lot of faith. 
you know, it takes a lot of faith. I mean, I'm just trying to envision this happening now when I go up to my wife and our five children and I say, well, it starts when you're off. <laughs> um, what are we going to do for food? Or just going to trust Jehovah Jireh. I'm going to go watch TV. I don't know how that would work. <laughs> you know, and this is something that Israel struggled with because when they did the manna, God made it so clear to them. You're going to collect manna so often, you're going to reach a point with the manna where you've got to trust that it's not going to spoil. You've got to, and they couldn't do it then. That was just for one day of the week. So, you know, this whole Sabbath year thing, you've got to remember, this is definitely a punishment. It's to get their attention, but it's a loving punishment. Like I said, I use the term spiritual timeout. I'm going to pull you out for 70 years, and when I send you back, we're going to rebuild the temple, we're going to start over, and we're going to get the focus ready. So it's a very loving thing, but was it a lack of faith? I think that's probably the simplest answer. That's a lot of faith to take a year off. A lot of faith. Yeah, Megan. I wish. No, they're not required to take a year off. Of the Ten Commandments, the only one not repeated in the New Testament is the idea of honoring the Sabbath. Because when Jesus taught in the Gospels, he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Every day he is God. Now, it's still a good biblical understanding to take a day and to have that be a family day, to have a day of rest and a day to really focus on the Lord. And when I say take a Sabbath, you got to remember so often we have made Sunday Sabbath from a biblical standpoint. It's sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Please understand that. So taking a Sabbath, I believe, is important to get rested and refreshed. A lot of people treat their quote-unquote Sabbath as, oh, good, this is my day to get everything done. It's easy to fall into that trap. God really wanted you to take a day and just enjoy Him. Now, the problem is, in our fast-paced society we have, this idea of, what are you going to do today? I'm just going to sit and enjoy the presence of the Lord. That doesn't, people are going to look at you and they're going to say, you're lazy, you need to go do something. I tell you, I've been doing this study on the temple, the tabernacle more exactly, and I'm kind of off base here a little bit, but if you imagine the tabernacle, if you kind of, kind of imagine, you have the outer court where all the sacrifices are happening. Constant activity. Only one door to get in. So for all these millions of people, you have this sacrifice going, it would be a wonderful place to be. Constant activity. Um, it's going to smell like a barbecue the entire time. All this is going on. Now you get into the actual tabernacle, and this is where you have the menorah and the showbread, etc. They would only go in there twice a day. Twice a day. You have your morning lighting and your morning bread and the evening, etc. So you only go in there twice a day. And now you get a little bit further in the tabernacle. Now you have the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence actually dwells. You only got to go in there one day a year. Now here's the point, though. Study this out. The goal is to get to where? The Holy of Holies. Guess where the least amount of activity is? The Holy of Holies. When you go study out the gospel, you're going to see Jesus getting away a lot. Going to deserted places a lot. So often we judge a Christian and we judge a church on their activities. And they are busy. They're in the court. Animal sacrifice. Smells like a barbecue. Constant activity. Look at us. Come to our church because we're doing this, 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 and this. If you really study it out, God is saying, yeah, the activity is important. But how about you get out of the court and not go to the tabernacle? And now you understand showbread. You'll start understanding menorah and prayer and incense. It's like, wow, Lord, you really just want me to sit. Remember the story of Mary and Martha. Martha is doing good things. She's serving. But Jesus said, Mary chose the better instead of my feet. Now, you even go deeper where it's just the Holy of Holies. Lord, I just want to be in your presence. I just want to worship you. I want to read and study. Okay, but James, who's going to go share the gospel with the lost? The Lord will lead you. It will definitely lead you. 
You go read the Gospels. Jesus never was in a hurry. Jesus was never stressed. Jesus never said, we got to go, guys. Come on, pick up the pace. Never did. It was a very calm focus. I'm here. And as I walk and live this life, the Lord is going to use me. I just want to encourage you. If you look at the outer tabernacle, that's where you get the most attention. Look at everything that's happening. Wow, you're busy. You're great. You're loving the Lord. But the goal is to get to the Holy of Holies and just sit in his presence and say, Lord, I want to learn and grow in you. So I don't even know how we got all that subject. So, But I hope I answered the question that was asked there. Um, but you want to just be in God's presence. And I want to encourage you. You hear me saying this the last couple of years. Your calendar does not dictate your life. Your commitments does not dictate your life. None of that matters. Yes, you have a job. Yes, you need to provide. Yes, you have bills to pay. That stuff I get. But ultimately speaking, your life is supposed to glorify the Lord in all you say and do and to be a witness for Him and to go out there to an unsafe world. Work on that. Yes, outer tabernacle. Yes, tabernacle. But ultimately, Lord, I just want to be in your presence in the whole of That's the goal. Just to be in his presence. Somebody else had a hand up, I probably saw. Yeah, Beth, Liz. Um, are there historical documents recording Cyrus's kingship of Persia outside the Bible? There is debate on that. Um, glad you asked, because I brought this in case somebody was going to ask. If I remember correctly, it's called the Cyrus Scroll. And there is some debate on that. Um, so to answer your question here, because I think we're running out of time, actually that clock is not working, unless it's 4.37. We've either been teaching for a very long time, or we got a long time left to go. Uh, what, what time is it? 7.45, 7.45. Let me show you, I'll show you afterwards. If you're interested, I'm just going to make a plug here. Um, something called Haley's Bible Handbook. Haley's Bible Handbook. Uh, this one Dawn bought for me for $2.00. If you are interested, it's a great book that also brings out the archaeology of studying out the Bible. And so that's why I brought this, because as we start getting into historical, sometimes there's interesting pictures here, and I thought somebody may ask about that. It's interesting to show you, because what they try to do is when we get into these secular kings, they also try to say, hey, here's the evidence we have found from the secular world to show that these people actually existed and what happened. Wonderful book. Like I said, Don got it for me for two bucks online. If you're interested in something to add to your biblical reading and study, wonderful, wonderful companion book there. Somebody else got anything here before we go on? Okay. Yeah, there. Yes, that was made perfectly clear. The whole book of Jeremiah, the whole book is trying to tell Israel 70 years of captivity is coming. And it's going to happen. Some quick references for that. Jeremiah 25, 9 through 12, and Jeremiah 29, 10. It was known. It was planned. And they were supposed to listen to Jeremiah. Real quick, I'll read you out of Jeremiah 25, 9. It says right here, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. And this land shall be a desolation and astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seven years. So they knew exactly what was coming. Now, when you study out Jeremiah, no one listened to him. No one listened to him. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, false prophets arose and said, nope, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Ignore Jeremiah. God's prophecy to Jeremiah was, hey, tell Israel, take the punishment. Now that's something that's not really popular to hear. But God's message to Jeremiah was, you just go tell Israel and put the time off for 70 years. you got to have it. you got to accept it. Just accept it. All these other false prophets are going to be proven wrong. 
So they knew it was coming. It was prophesied it was coming. They had a rebellious spirit. And when you see them coming back, it's a time for the nation to restart again, rebuilding the temple and starting over again. Anybody else have anything here before we go? Okay. Um, let's just do a couple quick things here real quick. Like I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time because we're actually running out of time here. So we talked about prophecy there in Ezra, excuse me, Ezra 1, uh, 1 through 4. Real quick, verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, of all whose spirits God had moved a robes to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, from which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of God. So we're going to pick up the pace here real quick. I want you just to see how this works. Verse 5, the heads of the fathers get the vision. God had moved them to go to Jerusalem. Now that everybody felt moved to go. Verse 6, other people encouraged them, encouraged them, some of the words, assisted them, strengthened them with actual materials to go. And then look at verse 7, even Cyrus himself got involved with this. This is the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. When you study out the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah gets the vision. Nehemiah takes that vision and presents it to, I'll use the word, to the church. The church then gets behind the vision, and as the church gets behind the vision, God just blesses it. You know, I can't, I lose track of time out here, but when we did that last big uh, uh, building addition, it's probably been 10, 12 years ago, I lose track. The way we did it is this. We felt the Lord, we needed more space. We needed some classrooms, fellowship, etc. So we just came to the church, and I read out of the book of Exodus, where Moses just went before the church and said, Hey, body. This is what the Lord laid on our heart we're supposed to do. And he just simply asked for the, the offerings to come in. We got up one Sunday and said, this is the vision the Lord has given us. We feel that we want to do this, and we're going to just present this to the body. We're not going to nag you on it. We're not going to bring it up again. But here's the vision. We didn't stick a thermometer out front. We didn't have anything in the bulletin that said, this is our building plan. This is our building project. This is the amount we need for a week. I'm not trying to put that down. If you, if you go to a church or a church that does that, we just said the way the Bible handles it is to present the vision to the church, remind them, remind them of a biblical responsibility to support what the Lord is doing and moving through tithes and offerings, and trust that the Lord's going to move and work. And guess what? He did. He did it then. He did when we did the original construction. This is what he did, does here in the book of Ezra. He just says, hey, here's the vision. Verse 5, guys say, I want that vision. I'm going to Jerusalem. Okay, the next group, verse 6, oh, you're going to Jerusalem? We want to support you going to Jerusalem. So it works. Still happens today on a much smaller scale. We're hoping to send a group to Mexico here. Guess what? They're not all going to go to Mexico. You don't all feel led to go to Mexico. Some feel led to go. Verse 5, you that don't feel led to go, maybe you'll feel led in verse 6 to support those who feel led to go. We do the same thing with BBS. Maybe you don't feel led to help out with VBS. Your schedule doesn't allow, etc. Could you pray for and support those that do feel led to help with VBS? Maybe you can't make it that week, but you can bring in crackers, snacks, etc. We did the Moscow preaches a couple weeks ago. Maybe you didn't feel led to go, but could you pray for us that do feel led to go? This is the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. And guess what happens? It just gets blessed. People get the vision. They do what the Lord has called them to do. Other people support that. And next thing you know, God is just blessing. Let's finish this up real quick. And it says in verse 8 about how Cyrus did stuff. What did he do? Verse 9. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other artifacts. All the other articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shezabar took with the captives 
who are brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. These are the verses I love. Because you read that, and you're like, Lord, that's in there for a reason. What is it? I can't tell you what his divine reason was. I can only tell you what I see in this. What I see in this is verse 9. I see 29 knives. 29 knives. Not about 30 knives. Not less than 50 knives. Literally 29 knives. The God you serve counts knives. And it reminds me of the verse in Matthew chapter 10 where he knows the what? The number of hairs on your head. So when you are sitting there in bed tonight, and no one gets you, no one understands, no one cares, and the loneliness, the discouragement, the depression, or your world comes falling apart, and next thing you know you're worried about this, I want you to remember, I'm not making a joke, God knew the 29 knives were sent back to Jerusalem, and God knew the numbers of hairs on your head. That's the Lord you serve. That is amazing detail, and that's what I absolutely love. Uh, so when you look at chapter 2, and we'll pick up a chapter 2 next week, and you see all these names, why are they in there? Because God cares about every single one of those individuals that stepped up and said, I'm willing to go back to Jerusalem. God says, you know what, I want to write that down for history. I want to record that forever. If you look at Ezra chapter 2, let's make a mental note, that's God's little personal scrapbook. And he says, I want to remember all those people that are willing to do it. That's the God you serve that remembers 29 knives. So, that, well, it's still 4.37, so um, I'm assuming we've got to be getting close to 8 o'clock here, so we'll kind of close it up right there. I hope you're going to be as blessed by this book as I am. I love these books where we get the historical, but at the same time, it's like, Lord, what is it in there? Oh, I hope you're as blessed by this as I am. We need some guys to help afterwards here. We're going to set up in the back and set up in the sanctuary. We appreciate that. I will be over in the uh, prayer area over here. If you didn't hear us announce this last Wednesday, this is one of the ideas that came out of the outreach committee meetings that we're going to have this area set up for prayer. Got anything to pray about, pop on over. I'd like that Jason and Matt will be making sure the stuff gets up and back. You can split the chairs here. Appreciate it. And please keep this weekend in prayer. Just really do. You know, anytime that we do any type of funeral service out there, the three things that uh, I try to do is obviously honor the memory of the person that passed, um, bring the comfort of the Lord to the family, and then obviously point people. Christ. And those are the three things that we're going to do this weekend, and uh, just keep everybody in prayer for that. So, hey, would you guys stand with me as we pray? Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for being a God that cares about 29 lives. Thank you for being a God that sees the future and that prophecy, you just you show your power in that. Lord, we, that's the God we want to serve and love. We thank you for that. Help us to live it out in all we do and say. And we obviously do pray for the Orway family this weekend with the God of comfort be with them in all ways. We love this up in your name. Amen. Alright, you guys have a good week and God bless.